Before I get started, uh, mum, if you're watching this online, I love you. Happy Mother's Day. Um, I know. Uh, there you go. A little right. There, these are, I'll bring these to you later. Um, okay, what I'm going to do this morning is uh, we are continuing our series on the road to Easter. And what I wanted to do is to read the story of the Last Supper. And I'd like, love to encourage you to read along with me. So if you have a Bible, um, if you've got it on your phone or a paper one, I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 22. Um, also, just with all the moving around, if you'd like to move further forward, that would be lovely as well. If you'd like to get a bit of a closer look, you're very welcome to do that. So I'm going to read from Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 14. Okay, so this is Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 14. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. And Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. And after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. But here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me, for it has been determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? The disciples began to ask each other which of them would ever do such a thing. Then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. And Jesus told them, in this world, the kings and great men lord, lord it over other people, and yet they are called friends of the people. But among you, uh, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here. For I am among you as one who serves. You have stayed with me in my time of trial, and just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you uh, as I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay, who has seen this film? Hands up. Very good, very good. Okay, so I actually only saw Karate Kid, the original, in lockdown. Uh, Maddie and I, well, specifically Maddie, made a list of films that she kept on referring to that I had not seen. This was one of them. And so, she, you know, wax on, wax off. And I'm like, Maddie, what are you talking about? I knew the pop culture reference, but didn't actually know the context for it. She said, this is ridiculous. I can't have a conversation with you if you don't understand this reference. So we started building a list, and Karate Kid made it onto that list. Amazing film. Absolutely loved it. And in this film, without giving too much away, uh, if you've not seen it, you must must go watch it, Daniel meets an instructor who defends him and gets him out of trouble and saves him from some bullies uh, in his uh, area. 
And actually, they strike up this unlikely partnership. And uh, Mr. Miyagi, who has become this, you know, absolutely iconic uh, figure um, as a result of this film, teaches him and shows him a kind and compassionate way to defend himself and to stand up for himself. And really, the climax of the movie is the point where Daniel is left on his own to tackle one final big challenge after everything that they've been through together. Can he do it on his own? And actually, this is a proven method for teaching um, all, all over the world. And actually, this is something that I do as part of my work um, as a graphic designer running a studio. We have junior designers. And one of the things that we do is we have this model, which is I do, we do, you do. And you'll maybe recognize this in various bits of work and, and places where you've been. And the idea is this. Okay, I'm going to do it, and you're going to watch me do it. This, this is how it should be done. Then we're going to do this thing together. Let's both work on this project, you know, simultaneously. And then you're going to do it. And so you understand that, that rhythm of watch me do it, let's do it together, and now you do it. This is a, a, a proven method for teaching. And it's in this art of, of teaching that in that last step, in the you do, there is often this surprising moment where you discover what you're capable of. And definitely in the film, as we'll allude to later on, Daniel surprises himself at what he is now able to do as a result of what had happened before. Okay, that's uh, the first film reference. Here's the second one. Can anyone uh, name this movie? This is a bit more of a niche one. This is a 2006 film called The Prestige. And actually, you may remember, I'd be amazed if you remembered this, a few years ago, I made reference to this film on a Christmas morning uh, talk that I did. Yes, I remember. You, yeah, Sally remembers. Sally, obviously. It was, it was a good one. It was, you could go back and listen. It was very good. And the reason, <laughs> the reason I refer to this very, very niche film is because it made uh, famous a series of steps that uh, basically you could use to apply to almost any magic trick. And it goes like this. Uh, the pledge, the turn, and the prestige. Um, that should be Century Gothic Pro font. That's Calibri, which is the most detestable font in the world. And that's happened because... <laughs> Claire's laughing. Because it's a PowerPoint and it's been imported, so the font's changed. Nobody else would have noticed that, would they? That's me. I'm just going to sit down now. I can't carry on speaking with that font behind me. It's officially the worst font in the world. Um, I'm just going to look forward. It might be worse than Comic Sans. I don't know. I'm not sure. That's a, it's, a big, it's a big claim. <laughs> I can't go on. The Pledge, the Turn, and the Prestige. And effectively, these three steps... I'm just going to keep looking this way. I'm going to ignore what's behind me. These three steps helpfully demonstrate the three phases of any good magic trick. The pledge is when the thing is held before you and you observe it. So in most of these tricks, whether it's cards or a coin, something is presented for the audience to look at. I did think, Matt, this is a great opportunity for you to learn a magic trick. And then I was like, no, I've got a five-month-old. That's absolutely not what I'm doing in the run-up to delivering a sermon. Just learning a magic trick. So you can just use your imagination. But a coin or a card, you know, pick a card, any card. The idea is that this thing is presented to you and you hold it in your memory. Then there is a turn. 
often something surprising happens and the thing disappears or changes shape or it vanishes. And so the card is, is disappeared out of view. The coin is gone. Uh, they rub it into their skin or something happens and, and the thing, there's a turn, a, a change of what you were expecting. And then finally, the prestige, the reveal. And it makes a return in a surprising way. The coin is actually behind your ear or the card is at the back of the room with your name on it. Something bizarre like that. The pledge, the turn, and the prestige. And, you know, there's a very famous uh, magical phrase, hocus pocus. Has anyone ever heard that phrase, hocus pocus? Now, what's interesting, a little bit of research has been done on this. And it was, it's been proposed that this term possibly came around as a parody of the proclamation of priests during Mass when they would say this phrase, hoc est corpus, which means this is my body. And so there's a potential that actually the phrase hocus pocus is a play on those words because actually what used to be proposed was that in communion, which is the result of what happened at the Last Supper, this magic trick was being performed where the bread and the wine literally became the body and the blood of Jesus. And this magic trick was happening. So as a parody of that, this hocus pocus phrase was born to say this magic trick. Look, I'm going to wave this wand and something's going to transform. And you'll be glad to know that I don't think that that's exactly what's happening uh, in communion. But is there a sense of this magical rhythm of pledge, turn and prestige? I think that there is. And let me show you what I mean by that. Has the font changed? No, it's still Calibri. Oh, gosh, here we go. Okay, I'm going to ignore that screen. The pledge. Jesus gives bread and wine to eat. In Luke chapter 22, verses 17 to 20, as I read, you'll see that he gives these symbols to represent himself. And he says, this is my body. This is my blood. Remember what I have done for you. So this symbol, this pledge is given. Jesus wants us to hold him at the front of our memory, the, fro- the forefront of our minds. Remember how I have saved you, how I have rescued you. Remember what I am going to do for you. Again, if we throw our minds back to this idea of Mr. Miyagi, that, that remembering how you know, this guy stepped in and saved Daniel on multiple occasions, Jesus wants us to remember that as the great teacher, the great example, he stepped in and intervened. And he says, as part of this memorial act I want you to do and build in his tradition, remember me. And there's this presentation, a pledge. But then there is a turn. The bread and the wine are consumed. They disappear. As we consume them, the symbol is gone. The thing that we were meant to hold in our minds, Jesus, what he's done for us, this person, this incredible person with great friendship, and he saved us, the symbol's gone. We consume it. And actually, what's really interesting is that during the meal, uh, we, we see that things begin to go a bit wrong. We witness friendship that is mixed in with betrayal. Look at this. The hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Literally in this wonderful moment that we're sharing together, this intimate, close moment where Jesus sits his final meal with his closest friends. It's meant to be this great thing. It actually says in the text that Jesus was eagerly looking forward to it. He was so looking forward to this. And what's happening? There's betrayal in the midst of this intimate moment. There is a turn. 
And then just even shortly after that, a sharp dispute, it comes up amongst the disciples over to which one of them is the greatest. So Jesus is like, I'm trying to have this great moment with you before my suffering begins. And what's happening? My friends are betraying me. They're arguing about who the greatest person here is. They're totally missing the point. And so after this symbol, Jesus saying, look, please remember what I've done for you. It's consumed. And then there is this sad turn where actually the symbol is gone. And there's almost a sense of of loneliness. It sets the scene for what happens later, that tragedy and triumph are a part of the narrative of Jesus' passion, the way that he saves us. And actually, the disappearance of this symbol, it reminds us of this feeling that in faith, often and in life, we sometimes feel that we're on our own. Faith involves moments when we doubt, when we deny, And when we even destroy. And we must remember that there was a moment on the cross where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We often forget that Jesus actually expresses a form of atheism or doubt in this climactic moment on the cross. And in communion, we see there is this rhythm that says, look, remember me and everything I've done for you. But if there's doubt, don't be afraid of that. If there's a moment where you feel like I've left you and that you're alone, Actually, Jesus went through that same feeling. I feel like in church circles, definitely as a youth worker, I remember that there was this big tension. How do we battle with big questions, with doubt, with anxiety around faith? What if we've not got it all sorted out? And the number of people that I spoke to over the years that said, I'm just having to take a break from faith at the moment. I've got this big, awkward question. I don't know how, I I can't talk about it in church. I don't want to ask it to anyone. So I just have to withdraw and figure it out myself. If we can't express doubt and denial and the destructive patterns of life in a church context, where can we do it? Even in communion, there is space for the big awkward question. There is space for your denial, for your doubt, and for your experience of loss and loneliness. It is actually built in to the rhythm of this meal that Jesus has given us. The turn, as the bread and wine are consumed, there is a sense of loss and of disappearance. But then finally, the prestige. There is the the surprising discovery that Jesus is with us at our lowest moments. And actually, he never really left. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 27 says, we are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We ate this thing. We had this symbol in front of us, bread and wine. It's literally here, these physical, tangible items that we can have. And then we consume them and we say, well, well, where is God now? And we declare over that doubt and anxiety and that sense of loss that he is with us all along. We are the body of Christ. We are his hands and feet to support and love one another, empowered by his spirit to make an impact in this world. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. He has empowered us. And so communion does these two things. We are given the symbols of Jesus' life and death, and so we have to remember what he has done for us. So in a way, we're kind of looking back into the past. But at the same time, Jesus says, The next time I have this meal is going to be in the future in the kingdom of heaven when all things are going to be made right and and heaven will come to earth. 
And as Pete talked about so brilliantly a couple of weeks ago, this idea of what we're aiming for, the Sabbath, that future rest that we're going to walk into. Jesus is saying, every time you have this meal, remember what's going to happen. And so in a way, every communion is a little Christmas, an Advent, a sense of waiting and longing for the future, as well as a little Easter, as we remember what Christ has done for us. And in the same way that Daniel, uh, at the end of the movie, uh, you know, despite all these trials and tribulations that he had gone through, constantly saved and bailed out of trouble by his instructor, Mr. Miyagi. He was trained by him, but then at the very end, he is in the ring, injured, facing his greatest opponent, and he knows that his teacher is not going to bail him out of this one. Mr. Miyagi is not going to step into the ring on his behalf and fight this one. It's not going to happen. And so in that moment, Daniel probably is struck with a sense of loss, feeling alone. How can I do this? Where has my teacher gone? But he discovers that actually the impact of his life means that in a way, Mr. Miyagi lives within him. And actually he has trained him for battle. He has empowered him. And Daniel is able to go on and do this thing uh, as though he was there with him. So friends, when you feel alone, and desperate, and let down, and you're not sure if there is a God, and you don't know how you're going to face this week or the next thing, Christ says every time you take communion to embrace and hang on to that sense of loneliness. That's okay. Name it, and it's, it's going to be all right. But be surprised at the impact that I'm going to have on you, because you are my body. By my Holy Spirit, I'm going to live in you and empower you to tackle this thing, to do this thing, There is a prestige, a sense of surprise in that reveal. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. But how? How do we do this? Well, what I want to do is I want to talk about um, the fact that meals can tell you a lot about a person. I once went on a friend's holiday. And uh, when I was about, I'm going to say about 19, 20 years old, and I went with a group of friends, just four of us, and uh, it was the first time we'd done a holiday like this. And these are friends that I've known from school for a long time. Um, and we had to go through that whole kind of camping thing of buying food, what's going to last, what, how many ice packs can we fit into a car that we're going to then drive to Wales, and how long is that food going to last? And, you know, being a bit generous with those sell-by dates. And just seeing, you know, how, how are we going to survive? How, how, what's the, the whole kind of process of eating together going to be like? Well, I learned a lot about my friends in that holiday, and in particular, one friend stood out, and I'm surprised that he's made it to the age that he currently is, And to be honest. We were sat around, and for our very first meal together, we just started with a small snack, and so we passed around some fruit, oranges. We all start peeling the oranges. This one friend of mine is sat there, just kind of looking at the thing, wondering, and I don't know what he's wondering is going to happen to this. Like, mate, you know, we're all eating this. You're not hungry. We've been, long journey, you know, we've driven, we've unpacked everything. What's going on? Well, what, what do I do with it? What do you mean, what do you do with it? He was like, what? How, how do you open it? I was like, no, you're kidding me. You're, you're actually, this guy's 19 years old. I said, what do you mean, what do you do with it? And he was like, we said, well, have you ever eaten an orange before? Yes. Well, how? Well, my mum used to do it for me. What do you mean? What do you mean? You're 19 and you've not peeled an orange before. I could not believe Mums, I love you, but if your kid is 19, 
and doesn't know how to open an orange, something needs to change. This guy, I am amazed that he's alive. At the end of the week, there was a very famous moment where he approaches us and says, chaps, I'm hungry. I'm going to make a sandwich. And we had packed some lunch meat. And obviously, you know, we've got ice packs and stuff. We fail to find on the, on the campsite where you would do the whole recycling of ice packs. It's very fancy and, and a bit complicated for us. And so the food that we've brought is kind of been the temperature, you know, that safe zone that they give you in the, the hand, food handlers safety training. And there's like a green zone to keep the food in there. And if it goes outside of that zone, that's dangerous. This food has been outside of that zone for like at least 48 hours. They come to us and we had brought lunch meat, ham and chicken. Okay, ham and chicken. These two things look very different, or at least they looked different when we arrived. They come up to us and this friend says, which one's the ham and which one's the chicken? We said, mate, if you can't tell the difference between the ham and the chicken, it's probably gone bad. You shouldn't really eat. If they're both that kind of, you know, that mysterious like gray color that meat goes when it's like a bit old, if it's that mysterious gray color, just leave it. Don't worry about it. No, it'll be fine. I'm sure I've picked the chicken. I'll go for it. Needless to say, we didn't see him for another three hours. And when he did come back, he was a shell of himself. And again, I just can't believe that this guy has made it. He's still alive. He is. He's a friend of mine. We still talk. He's okay. I don't know if he can do an orange, but meals, right? They tell you a lot about a person, don't they? And I love it when we have people over for dinner or if we're invited to someone else's. Meals are so intimate, aren't they? You learn a lot through food and eating together. And that's why I absolutely love um, that the community church, just after COVID, we finally got them back on board and we're doing our meals together again. And it's one of my favorite things to eat together, to share together, to have, to try different foods, different cultures, different experiences, to talk to one another. Meals are intimate things. And so isn't it fascinating that Jesus, the moment before his great trial, his great suffering begins, he could have planned anything. He could have planned a big teaching conference and gotten everyone together and said, okay, everyone, this is what you need to remember. He could have done a big campaign or a crusade. He could have raised up an army. He could have done any number of things. And what does he do? Let's sit down and eat. Let's have a meal together. Because meals are vulnerable and intimate things, and they reveal a lot about character. But at this meal, as they often do in life, things begin to go wrong. There is pride, betrayal, warnings of tough times coming up. All of a sudden, this meal that Jesus was supposed to be really looking forward to, things go wrong. They unravel. But the meal ends, and you can read about this in John 13, and actually Dave Mitchell touched on it last week, with Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Jesus was word become flesh. He's this spiritual God made in our image. He is the perfect blend of words, ideas, and philosophies with action, justice, and service, and physical, real acts. He holds all of that together in perfect harmony. And the whole point of this meal, the foot washing, it was to take spiritual truth and to turn it into action. Jesus often would uh, take words 
and put them into flesh. Give them, you know, a physical thing that we could look at. That's what he did all throughout his ministry. In particular, the two things he was really good at doing this with was leadership and love. And we see both of those things so strongly at play in this meal. He gives strategy, he builds community, and he's trying to build this team. He's showing real leadership, but also perfectly demonstrating what does it mean to love people, to be with them in the middle of that denial and that anxiousness and that loss and that suffering, and also to serve. But how often do we take Jesus' actions and turn them into words and fancy sermons? How often do we look at what Jesus did in the Bible and we just talk about it loads? We write books about it. We write songs about it. We talk about it all the time. And we reverse his action. We take his actions. We turn them into words. If we do that, it's all useless. We must look at the actions of Jesus and say, great, how can I do the same thing instead? So the whole point of this Last Supper really is an encouragement from Jesus to selflessly love and serve those around you. Jesus, at the end of this meal, he looks at this and he's like, my friends have just completely got this wrong. They're arguing, there's bickering, there's betrayal. What can I do in this moment? And really, leaders have to figure out in those moments what they're going to do, and it's really difficult. And what does he decide? He takes his clothes off, as if a meal wasn't already vulnerable enough. He gets almost naked. And he washes his disciples' feet. The lowest act he could do, the most humbling, humiliating, servant-like thing, he gets on his hands and knees and scrubs these feet of all the disciples. And there's this truth in life that I, I really believe in. And Simon Sinek wrote this great book called Leaders Eat Last. So I just want to ask you to repeat this phrase for me after three. One, two, three. Leaders eat last. And so where the disciples took the meal as a chance to talk themselves up and to big themselves up and to argue and to cause division, Jesus strips down and takes on the role of a servant by washing their feet. The self-aware and the self-assured people are best equipped to love others by putting their needs ahead of their own. Here's a quote from this book, Leaders Eat Last. And they're borrowing from this example of uh, leaders in the Marine Corps. Marine leaders are expected to eat last because the true price of leadership is the willingness to place the needs of others above your own. Great leaders truly care about those they are privileged to lead. And they understand that the true cost of leadership privilege comes at the expense of self-interest. Leaders eat last. We see this all throughout the Gospels, and Jesus models this perfectly. But does anyone in society do this more consistently than mothers? Well, to every woman who has given up their dreams in order to support their family, to every woman who has worked tirelessly and without thanks, who has been underpaid, underrepresented, and underappreciated, who has put the needs of their children, partners, and friends ahead of their own consistently, who has cared for others even when they are sick and tired, and who constantly put themselves last, the Bible says, she who is last shall be, first. 
She who is last shall be first in the kingdom of God. Because leaders eat last. And Jesus demonstrated that those with the greatest spiritual authority are those with the greatest capacity to serve and love others. So today of all days, I'm particularly grateful for the women in my life that we celebrate on Mother's Day who have served and served and served and in that way are incredibly like Jesus. What, an, what a model for all of us to try and follow. So just as I finish here, I hope that you will be encouraged to see that communion is a commission. Communion is a commission because you are not alone. Jesus has trained you, given you his spirit, and now lives in you. You are the body of Christ. Here this morning, church, we are the body of Christ. He has called and equipped all of us for great acts of love and service in your families, workplaces, neighborhoods, everywhere. You are the hands and feet of Jesus. Communion is a commissioning. And as you celebrate this meal, and to be honest, any meal in the future, would you remember that leaders eat last? Because in the kingdom, service is more important than success. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, the story of the Last Supper. And Lord, just as we reflect on it, we see all these complexities, all of these relationships and dynamics that are taking place. And and it's fascinating to watch and to have this account. But Lord, we're just struck by these two truths. That in this meal that was given to us as as a sign of remembrance, there's a sense of commissioning. Lord, that even when we feel on our own and there's that sense of loss and actually we feel like we've lost you and and, and things have disappeared, been taken from us. God, in that moment, you say, I am with you. And Lord, I pray that today, those who are feeling that, feeling slightly distant from you, feeling lost, feeling in denial. God, I pray that by your spirit, you would speak to us and encourage us today to know that you are with us training us. We are your hands and feet in this broken and hurting world. Lord, communion is a commission. And Father, I pray as well for, um, for all of us that we would be inspired by Jesus' selfless acts of service. Lord, would we know and remember that leaders eat last in the kingdom of heaven, that we are called to serve, uh, to put others' needs ahead of our own And Lord, we say thank you for all the women in our lives, for the mothers uh, and people who have just had such an impact on us that have done this without recognition and without thanks for years and years and years. Lord, would you help us to be grateful for those people in our lives and to support them um, and to love them? Lord, would we learn from those people as well? Help us to do that more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.